Well, good morning, and welcome to the North Carolina Court of Appeals. Um, I'm Judge Toby Hampson. To my right is Judge Jeff Carpenter. To my left is Judge Allison Riggs. Um, you've met our clerk for the day, uh, Mr. Roderick McFarland, and our Deputy Marshal, Richard Grimillard. Um We have one case for argument on the calendar uh, this morning, and um, after which we'll adjourn and then we'll return back in ceremonial session uh, for the admission of an oath uh, to a newly licensed attorney. Um, so our case for the calendar today is 22858 Carter v. NC Baptist Hospital. Uh, if the appellants are ready, we'll, we'll hear from them. May it please the court. My name is Walter Burton. I'm here on behalf of the appellant. Uh, Kara Boardman is also here today. Uh, Jim Haskins and Scott Wall from Martinsville, Virginia were pro-hocked in. They are not here, but they also represent the appellant. Uh, this case comes on, uh, Your Honors, from the standpoint of two motions for summary judgment that were granted. Uh, as to Dr. High, uh, his motion was granted a year prior to uh, Feldman and Ballad. Uh, and from the standpoint of why those motions were granted, there are two different things. The case arises, first of all, uh, out of what we contend is a failure to diagnose cancer situation. We would contend to the court that beginning in 2016 in January, going all the way up until the time that Mr. Carter died in April of 2017, approximately 15 months, he was suffering from cancer. And that that cancer went undiagnosed for, for a long period of time, not being diagnosed until five weeks before his death in February of 2017. Uh, the defendants in the case include three different doctors as well as Wake Forest Baptist Hospital, uh, and there are Wake Forest Baptist Hospital records from an, from an oncologist that speak to the idea that the cancer was misdiagnosed for over a year uh, with respect to the uh, ultimate cause of death in this case. Uh, from that standpoint, if I can go back uh, to the very beginning with respect to the facts, uh, Worth Carter uh, began treatment with his general doctor, a Dr. Lewis up in Virginia, in January of 2016. He began to see a dermatologist, Dr. Zalecki, uh, and by the way, there's a lawsuit against Dr. Zalecki in Virginia uh, that has a trial date in uh, August of this coming year. At any rate, he began to see her uh, in February of 2016. Uh, in March of 2016, I believe March the 24th, she diagnosed a large nodule uh, in his groin area. And by the way, this is a uh, groin area skin cancer that we're talking about. That nodule, she began to watch, and in her notes as we went along in, in the time frame, uh, in uh, May of that year, she talked about the idea that the nodule needed to be uh, biopsied uh, to determine whether or not there was anything more there. She treated the skin rash that was there as being fungal and or bacterial, and also it, was, uh, it came back positive for MRSA at one point, and treated it with various different things. Over the course of her time in treating Mr. Carter, that treatment essentially ending in May of 2016, again, she references the idea that the biopsy needs to be done uh, and that they need to go further with diagnostic testing. At that point, he's referred by her uh, over to Dr. Uh, 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 shoot, the name is escaping me for a moment, uh, Dr. High, pardon me. Uh, and the appointment with Dr. High, the first appointment is June the 24th of 2016. When Dr. High sees uh, Mr. Carter, it's on the uh, heels of getting all of Zulecki's records and getting all of Lewis's records. Uh, and as I indicated before, there are multiple references in Zulecki's records about the need for a biopsy. Dr. High uh, is an uh, infectious disease doctor. 
Uh, and from that standpoint, Dr. High saw him one time in June of 2024, and then Dr. High puts a note in the chart uh, that's July the 7th of 2024 that he believed the condition was likely congestive heart failure and that he was uh, dismissing Mr. Carter from any further care as far as infectious disease goes. At that point, uh, uh, Mr. Carter goes up to Johns Hopkins, and he goes to Johns Hopkins because the rash is now some six months old. The nodule is now some six months old. When Dr. High saw uh, uh, Mr. Carter in June, again, the rash was now four months old, uh, and the rash, uh, uh, the nodule was four months old, and the rash was six months old. Uh, and Dr. Uh, High had all of that before him at that time. From that standpoint, he goes to Johns Hopkins. He's seen by infectious disease there. He's seen by dermatology there. Uh, and he's seen by wound care uh, uh, doctors there. And from that standpoint, the Johns Hopkins records indicate that they believed a biopsy needed to be done of, of the nodule uh, and that they needed to consider other diagnostic testing to rule in or out malignancy in that respect. And we've cited to those things in the brief about that. I want to go back and I want to go ahead and address Dr. High for a moment because his treatment already is, is coming into play. That's that June 24th visit. Well, and for, for purposes of summary judgment at least, I, I, yes. maybe your colleagues might disagree with some of the details, but, but the overall timeline for purposes of summary judgment I think is, is, is largely uncontested. Yes, sir. Is that right? Yes, so sir. what we're really focused on, and maybe we'll stay with Dr. High for a minute, is um, is whether the, the two experts were qualified under Rule 702 to, to, to testify against him that he had breached the, the standard of care. That's exactly correct as it relates to Dr. High. You know, from Dr. High's standpoint, again, as I indicated, he's infectious disease. Camisa and Carico are the doctors that were identified as experts. One is a dermatologist, the other is a wound care doctor. And from that standpoint, we don't contend to the court uh, that their specialties are infectious disease. What we're talking about is under 702 and under 9J, when we're talking about the qualification aspect, we're talking, number one, are they the same or similar specialty? And then number two, the second criteria, talks about the idea of the procedure uh, that you're talking about. Is the procedure something that they perform? Uh, at, we're at Rule 56 stage. 9J and Rule 56 are different in the analysis. Would yes, you agree with that? Yes, sir. Totally agree. Okay. And from that standpoint, we are at rule, at, at rule 56, and we are talking about whether or not the plaintiff has come forward with evidence to present to a jury uh, for there to be a jury question on that point. Uh, and when we're uh, talking about that issue, though, coming back to the idea, there's case law, and this court's familiar with that case law, that sort of splits uh, to some degree in two different ways. There are four cases that speak to the idea that you don't necessarily have to be of the same specialty because, again, remember, it's same or similar. Uh, and so when, when you talk about those ideas, we're talking about the idea of whether or not it's the same uh, uh, specialty uh, in that respect. Uh, and clearly, we're conceding the idea that Dr. High is infectious disease. Dr. Camisa and Carico are not infectious disease. The argument is, under the similar prong that we're dealing with, this court has looked at situations and has found situations where doctors do similar things. For example, one of the cases cited in the, in the brief is an emergency room doctor who, who, who puts in a main central line for patients, and a surgeon puts in a main central line for patients. So they both do the same thing in that respect, but they're different specialties. So we, one of the things that I understand from your argument is that the substantially similar, do the same procedure, the, the 
crux is that all of these physicians would or qualified to either do or to order a biopsy of a suspicious lesion. Is that? No, no, ma'am, that's not correct. To, to go back to your point, because uh, it's an important distinction that's to be made in the cases, we get into this argument and the defense wants to make the argument that the quote procedure, the second prong of 702, is the performance of a biopsy. That's not the procedure. It's never been the procedure in this case. What we're talking about, and if you look back to the complaint, in the alphabet soup paragraphs, as I call them, the ABC, et cetera, if you look back at those paragraphs, uh, subparagraph A and subparagraph B, they talk about the idea of, one, a failure to consider cancer in your diagnoses. They talk about, number two, a failure to rule in or out cancer. You know, with respect to the failure to consider, Dr. High's testimony, despite the fact that he had the records from uh, the, the Dr. Selecki referencing the need for the biopsy early on, his own testimony is he, quote, never considered cancer, close quotes. His record says that despite the fact that there were multiple references to the nodule, multiple references to the need for a biopsy of the nodule, that he did not consider cancer. We would contend to you, and I believe our experts have testified, that that's a violation of the standard of care. If you have a patient of this type who has a rash that's existed for as long as this has and a nodule that's existed for as long as this has, you have an obligation as a physician treating these kinds of patients to consider cancer. But isn't considering cancer, I mean, to just consider it in your head, it requires you to take an act. That is, the malpractice is yes. not acting yes. on that. And yes. here, both for the 9F experts and the later experts, you have a focus on we would have ordered a biopsy in these in this circumstance. Yes, ma'am. So, so back to the point. The first thing is, yes, you've got to consider it. It's got to be in your differential, okay? It's a violation of the standard of care if it's not under these circumstances. But number two, yes, you've got to take action. You've got to refer the patient out if you don't do the diagnostic testing to get them diagnostic testing or you do the diagnostic testing yourself. It's not the performance of the, of the biopsy itself. You know, when you talk about that, the idea from Dr. High, he's testified in his deposition that doctors like him often do do biopsies. He chooses not to do one. That's not the point. Go, go back to the point when... When doesn't, I mean, if the, if the, if the procedure, the, the, the act is the failure to consider cancer, doesn't that sort of open up the possibility that, that any physician, a generalist, um, uh, could, could qualify as an expert witness in this scenario because presumably, I mean, even I go to my general physician, I would, I would hope that if there was something that somewhere in the back of their head they might consider. The, the answer, uh, respectfully, Your Honor, is no. And the reason it's no is these doctors, infectious disease, wound care, dermatologists, all treat the same patients. They see patients who have skin rashes like Carter had. They see patients who had nodules like Carter had. They know the history and the growth rate of those kinds of cancers if they are in fact cancer, and they all have that knowledge in that respect. They are being referred to them for that specific reason. You know, you go back to Zalecki. 
Zulecki referred him, despite the fact that Zulecki had indicated in her own records, it needs a biopsy, we need to investigate this. She referred him to another person for a second opinion, who summarily disregarded that and stayed with the same diagnosis that there was. Think about the flip side of this. If you take the position that the court uh, is speaking about in general, first of all, I would argue it doesn't apply for that reason, but second, even if you're more specific, what you give to Dr. High is, a, is an unbridled pass. All he has to do is say, I never considered it. The, the experts in this case have said it's his job to consider it. The facts and circumstances regarding this, it's his job to understand it. When he goes to Johns Hopkins, what does he see? He sees wound care. He sees dermatology, uh, and he sees uh, uh, infectious disease. The exact same three specialty of doctors that he saw at Baptist. The only difference is he sees them all inside of a week. So moving back to the uh, kind of the issue that, that Judge Carpenter, I think, touched on, when we're, we're kind of got this, you know, sort of the summary judgment posture, we've got Rule 702, essentially qualification of an expert, kind of coming together yes. in, in this issue. And so I... Um, I, I guess my two, two questions, I guess, which is number one, um, you know, is, is same or similar specialty, that test, is that a question of fact or is it a question of law that can be resolved by a trial court? And then two, you know, typically under Rule 702, our, our standard of review is broadly an abuse of discretion. Yes, obviously. Yes, some detail in there, but and whereas summary judgment obviously is de novo. So, those are my two questions, standard of review, and is this a question of fact or a question of law? Clearly a question of law, no issue about that. Uh, and from that standpoint, we would argue it's clearly an abuse of discretion. Because again, the patients that are being seen, or Mr. Carter is being seen, by doctors who see the same patients. You know, again, I go back to Johns Hopkins. When he goes up there for a week, he goes through those same three uh, 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 groups, specialty groups, and the reason is they all see the same patients. Johns Hopkins records then say, and by the way, I'll move on to the second part of this. Johns Hopkins records then say, need for a biopsy. You know, go back and get a biopsy. Uh, defense would argue that Mr. Carter chose not to have one there, and there's no evidence of that in the record. That's simply their spin on that point. He's referred back to Baptist, where he sees Feldman, uh, and it's for the purpose of getting a biopsy. They say specifically the idea that you need to consider the possibility of malignancy. And yet, when he comes back, Feldman doesn't do it. Feldman sees him on August the 3rd, uh, and in that sense does not do a biopsy. Feldman also doesn't consider cancer at that point in time. You, you, go, you come forward with the records. Vallad sees him beginning in September, September the 22nd, I believe the date is. Uh, and from that standpoint, if we look back at those uh, different things, uh, uh, Feldman saw him on August the 3rd, August the 18th, November the 3rd, and December the 1st, so four times. When you come back to Vallad, Vallad saw him 12 times. In virtually every record Vallad ever authors, he talks about the ne potential need for a biopsy, yet he never does one. He never pursues the idea of whether or not this is cancer all the way until February. Again, the defense spin on that is that Mr. Carter chose not to have that, and nothing's farther from the truth. Feldman was asked that, and so was Vallad. Vallad said that he never pushed a biopsy in that sense. He did not say Carter refused to have one. That's simply their spin. 
but we come back to that idea. Nobody, despite now we've come through uh, all of Zulecki's records, we've come through all of the uh, records from Johns Hopkins, we've come through High's record, we've come through the beginning of uh, uh, Feldman's records. Nobody is doing anything to pursue the possibility of cancer. And from that standpoint, I come back to that first uh, record that I referenced in, in the beginning of, uh, of the argument. We come back to that idea that the oncologist at Baptist in March of 2017 says, misdiagnosed for a year. From that standpoint, your honors, all they had to do is one, consider cancer. Two, take steps forward to rule it in or rule it out. And they never did any of those things to rule it in or rule it out. And, and, and what happened was it, it simply amorphed. Our experts have said that they believe the cancer was there back in January of 16. And they believe that it was uh, a uh, localized cancer. It had not metastasized. They believe beginning late September, early October, it was probably metastasizing. And from that standpoint, at that point, we changed the scenario about what it is. They cite the Parks case and they talk about, quote, loss of chance. And they make an argument that I made some sort of judicial admission at the uh, trial court level below. And nothing is farther from the truth. All that is is a matter of semantics. First, when you look at Parks and we talk about Parks, that's a stroke drug. If you don't give it within a certain number of hours or days, literally hours or days, you can't give it. And from that standpoint, if you do give it, and I think Mr. Melrose from the western part of the state was the plaintiff's lawyer in that case. But if you do give it, in that sense, Park says, when we give no drug at all, the, the placebo group, 20 to, 20, uh, 20 to 26% of the people get better. When we give it, 13% more get better. It doesn't reach more likely than not. And what they were arguing in that case was to lower the more likely than not standard. They were trying to say, we need to lower the standard. And the court said, that's speculative. And by the way, you don't reach the more likely than not standard. You know, you, you come back to the other case that, that they uh, cited uh, with respect to that, and it's the same sort of thing. But think about this case. This is a case where their own records say, misdiagnosed for a year. High authors a note in March of 2017, March the 17th of 2017, that says primary diagnoses, that is the, the skin cancer, yes. He says that's the primary from that standpoint. So that's an admission from High that it is in that respect. Now they're going to argue to you that it's not, but again it's their spin on the note. We're simply arguing the words. It says primary question mark, answer yes from that standpoint. So, so again, when we come back full circle on all of this, when we're talking about proximate cause now, is there proximate cause evidence? Our experts say, number one, it was there from in January of 2016. So we come back to the records. So Lecky never, never does anything to rule it in or out. High never does anything to rule I it think, out. I, I think the, the, the question, though, is, is proximate cause of what? Death. Death. But, but it's both. You know, Parks, this idea of Parks being loss of chance, some argument being made that you can't have that under North Carolina law, that's not true. And the reason it's not true is it's not what it stands for. Parks stands for the idea that it was below the more likely than not. Our experts have said that they believe even if he's diagnosed after it's metastasized, if it's diagnosed early enough, he still has a, a, a greater than 75% chance at a six-month to nine-month to year extension of life. 
That is compensable under North Carolina law because we've met the standard. It's more likely than not, and we've said 75%. Remember, under parks, it's not really 40%. It's really 13% in that sense. And again, what they were arguing in parks was to lower that standard on that argument. When you think about Narcan's a drug that comes to mind, the TPA, is the, the stroke drug come to mind, those are drugs that are given within minutes, hours, or days of a situation. If you don't give them within minutes, hours, or days, you've lost the chance to do that. Gower, the case that's cited by the defense, is a case where somebody had a broken neck. Uh, and the idea, first of all, Gower doesn't really tell us what neurologic issues in the two weeks before the broken neck's diagnosed. Yeah, and then the question is, could you have said it? And if you would have said it, what changes would it have made? Because we don't know what those neurologic changes already are. The court said that's too speculative to be able to rule on that. That's not this case. This case, the experts have said, uh, with respect to that, that he would have, one, survived. They would have found a cure rate for him. And we talk about more surgery and other things like that in the, in the deposition. He would have survived if diagnosed before metastasized. They had plenty of opportunity to be able to do that and did not do that. Number two, if it's after the metastasizing, he would have survived longer. We all know people who have been diagnosed with all forms of different cancers and have lived long, productive lives. Uh, and in that sense, uh, Your Honors, this is not a TPA case. This is not a Narcan case. It's not a failure to give something that that is then lost. This is a failure to diagnose and that failure to diagnose took away his right to survive and or took away his right at additional time. Uh, yeah, and I'm saving the balance of the time for rebuttal. I apologize. So uh, 926. Yes, sir. Thank you. Yep. If you're ready, we'll hear from the appellee. May it please the court, good morning. My name is Mike Mitchell. I'm at Smith Anderson here in Raleigh. Uh, I'm here with Deanna Anderson, and we have the privilege of representing Wake Forest and three of the defendant's uh, doctors uh, that you heard about. Um, there are two other doctors that I may mention during the course of my argument, Dr. Sangueza, who's a dermatopathologist. Uh, his uh, evidence and testimony is critical on the question of proximate cause. And then Dr. Applegate uh, also may mention him. Neither of those two last individuals are defendants. Uh, Dr. High, Dr. Vlad, Dr. Feldman are the three defendant doctors. Uh, Your Honors, um, I fully recognize at summary judgment that we live under Rule 56 in a procedural fiction, that the evidence must be viewed in the light most favorable to the plaintiff. I get that. Uh, it's hard to sit here and hear them shade the uh, facts, and Judge Hampson, I, I think you recognize we disagree with a lot of that. I think that you received some information that was not correct. But in any event, at, at Rule 56, we live in a procedural fiction. I don't want to lose sight of the fact, though, to make sure that you all know that the defendant doctors and Wake Forest strongly disagree with the notion that Mr. Carter died from extra memory Paget's disease, which I'll refer to as EMPD. We totally disagree with that. We believe that it was cancer that was from an, an unknown original source that metastasized to his skin. That is exactly what the pathology, excuse me, that what the pathology, but also the death certificate says as the cause of death. Still, even with the procedural fiction, 
you all, I think, easily can affirm the summary judgment that Judge Hall entered for Dr. High and that Judge Gottlieb entered for the other defendants. While there are a number of issues in this appeal, I do want to say to the court what I think are the ones that are the most significant is the ones that have received the most treatment in the briefing. Uh, the first is whether the plaintiff's two standard of care experts, and they only have two, uh, are in a similar specialty to Dr. High. That's the first issue. Uh, and the second issue is when whether you, the plaintiff... When you say they only have two, you're talking about the two who submitted the 9Fs um, certification, and your, your ultimate point is that the other two, two or more, who came in later for summary judgment on the other two doctors can't be considered when we're talking about the 9F certification. Co correct, Your Honor. Uh, under Rule 9, uh, the only issue that we're really talking about, and it's really not, not a Rule 9 issue, uh, it's a Rule 702B issue, similar specialty. Uh, that issue is unique to Judge Hall's decision with respect to um, Dr. High. Well, actually, let's go there, because there, there, there is this sort of this issue kind of hanging out there that we haven't talked about, and that is what was the basis of Judge Hall's summary judgment motion? Was it, was it 9J, i.e., sort of the plaintiff's reasonable expectations at the time of the filing of the complaint? Or was it truly uh, sort of on the basis of 702 that these experts simply would not qualify and therefore summary judgment was, was appropriate? What, what, what was the grounding of that decision? Yeah, yes, Your Honor, and happy to address that. You know, it's interesting how lawyers can sort of be ships passing in the night about what their, their points are. Um, we never made Rule 9J a basis for summary judgment as to Dr. High. Defense attorneys in med mal cases don't make 9J summary judgment arguments because that is a complete waste of time. You would spend all this discovery when you don't need to do that. So 9J is a motion to dismiss. This was a Rule 56 motion for summary judgment. So what did Judge uh, Hall know? The moment Judge Hall walked into the courtroom in Forsyth County, he announced to us, I have read your briefing. I've read everything that you've all, you all have submitted. The entirety of our brief to Judge Hall was Rule 702B. During the questioning of Mr. Burton by Judge Hall, and I've got the transcript here, he asked Mr. Burton, what do you think is the best if I'm looking in support of your argument, you know, I'm aware of the cases where, you know, an emergency medicine specialist and a cardiologist both see people who succumb to heart attacks, but those are not substantially similar to purposes of 702B. What case do you think is the most persuasive for your argument? Mr. Burton said, I don't think, unfortunately, I don't think there is a case yet in North Carolina on that point. Judge Hall was not confused about the reason that we were in front of him. He knew that we were there under Rule 702B. He knew that we were there for Rule 56 summary judgment. There was no confusion uh, about that issue. So when he, when he says, when you, no judge relish, relishes the notion of allowing a summary judgment that would release a physician based on 9J, what would be described as a technical basis, I mean, help me understand that seems pretty clear to me no that's that's a your, your honor I would say judge Riggs that that is an offhand comment that he made and and I would say look at what the this court did in the um, the Jacobs versus Mann case uh, where there were several different motions in that in that case the first was 
to exclude anesthesiologists. And the motion that was made was Rule 9J and Rule 702B. There were no findings of fact, and the, trial, the uh, Court of Appeals in that case affirmed on 702B. And I think that's exactly what you're dealing with here, except we're in an even stronger position that findings of fact are unnecessary because we're at, at Rule 56. Trial judges don't make findings of fact uh, under Rule 56. To get back to, to Judge Hampson's point, Mr. Mitchell, if I understand your position from a procedural timing perspective, your 9J issue would have been taken up on a 12B6 or a 12C, not a, a Rule 56 at some point later. Is that correct? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. That's, that's why you surmise that we're dealing with a 702 issue and not a 9J issue. That, I understand your position correctly? Yes, Judge Carpenter, but even more strongly, I'd say the only reason that we argued to Judge Hall was 702B at summary judgment. So we had never made a Rule 9J motion. So in, in any event. Were the other, two, the other plaintiff's experts disclosed at that time when you were making the, the motion in front of Judge Hall about Carrico and Camisa? They, they were the only experts that have ever been disclosed against Dr. Hall. They're the only standard care experts in the case for the, for the plaintiff. They were disclosed uh, in interrogatories uh, that were submitted. And, um, and I would say this is probably a good time to reference, I think, an error that was made to you all in, in the uh, argument from plaintiff's counsel. We asked in interrogatories, what, you know, what, tell us what the procedure is. They clearly identified the failure to diagnose, the failure to perform a biopsy is in rule, I think, in page 78 of the record. They identify that as the procedure in question, not this notion of you didn't diagnose cancer or you didn't have it on a differential. We asked them, we can't do more than ask the opposing party, what is the procedure that you say is at issue? They told us that. It's different now, an oral argument, but we've got to deal with what we have in real time and that's for the purpose of asking that in the interrogatory. So I think it's incorrect to say that the procedure is now somehow different. We, we asked that and that's what we were told. Turning to, if I could, the question about whether Dr. High is in a similar specialty to Dr. Camisa, dermatology, and Dr. Carrico, who is a wound care specialist, um, I think it's important for the court to know the language that the plaintiff uses as the premise for why they believe the specialties are similar. They say, quote, they're similar in, quote, in that each specialty treats the same or similar types of patients with skin infections and skin issues. Plaintiff never discusses in their briefing the Supreme Court's most recent decision analyzing the similarity prong of Rule 702B, the De Silva case. That is a 2020 decision from the Supreme Court where the court says that similarity under 702 is defined by education, training, and experience. Judge Hampson, I think you correctly identified the problem with their argument. Even a generalist, somebody who's gone to med school, would say, oh, I've got to put cancer on my diagnosis, on my differential diagnosis. If that is it's how broadly that we would define the similarity argument, then we completely ob obliterate the rule. We have dr driven a truck through a loophole in the rule. But the Supreme Court in De Silva says it's the education, training, and experience of the physicians that matters. 
It doesn't, it's not based on whether their patient population may sometimes see similar patients. That's not the test. If that were the way it would be written, then the legislature would have written it that way. This is a statute. But I think, I think what we would hear from your, your colleagues is that this kind of goes to that experience prom under, under De Silva, right? That because you're treating the same kind of patients who would present to you showing the same kinds of symptoms that based on your experience treating those same patients with the same presentation, that that would be part of your differential diagnosis because you're treating those, those particular kind of skin type issues. Right, and I think, first of all, unpacking that a little bit, that's wrong because a differential diagnosis is not the procedure. A biopsy or the failure to perform a biopsy is the procedure that they have disclosed in the lawsuit. Well, that, would, there was their theory. do you think there is a, a medical malpractice claim generally, just speaking generally, for the, arising from a failure to diagnose? Generally, uh, that could be. And the way that a plaintiff would get to that is to get someone who is in the same or similar specialty to opine about what the standard of care would be for that particular physician with their own education and training experience, which is going to provide them with a different perspective. That's what 702B recognizes, the legislature recognizes that physicians come from different perspectives. So a surgeon almost always is gonna think about operating, okay? That's their perspective. The rule 702B recognizes that we can't expect all of them to come at something from the exact same perspective and we, we then allow for that to happen. It's good for medicine, but, but let, that's the reality they live in. But let me ask you a question. With these different, just confining ourselves to infectious disease, dermatology, and wound care, wouldn't it be fair to say each of these physicians are, when presented with a rash of undetermined origin, these doctors are trained in figuring out how to make diagnoses. Now, if, it, if you focus on fungal and bacterial infections, maybe that's where your brain goes first, but that's part of the education, training, and practice of doctors that have to deal with um, rashes or wounds of indeterminate sources. You have to figure out what it is. Right, and, and Judge Riggs, I, I would say that's exactly right, but let's look at what the evidence says. The evidence in the case from Dr. Carrico, the wound care specialist, He's conceded that his training and experience was not similar to Dr. High. He said, I don't know whether an infectious disease doctor at Wake Forest can order a biopsy. And I also think this is very telling, it's in the record. When he was asked in his deposition if the medications that Mr. Carter was taking at the time of Mr. Carter's only visit with Dr. High on uh, June 24 of 2016, whether those medications that predated Dr. High seeing him would have made Mr. Carter more susceptible to a fungal infection, Dr. Carrico begged off. He said, I don't know. I'm not an infectious disease doctor. I can't answer that question. He recognized that the perspectives are different. What they're looking at is different. Their differential diagnosis, they're gonna come at it from their own education and training experience, that's, that is absolute common sense. And Rule 702 recognizes that. Dr. Camisa, dermatology, admitted that he was not trained and has never practiced in infectious disease. 
He admitted that there are no infectious disease, disease doctors at his practice in Florida. And he also didn't know whether an infectious disease specialist at Wake Forest could even order a biopsy. Again, an example of how little these individuals know about the applicable standard of care for an infectious disease doctor practicing at Wake Forest. So, Your Honor, there is something else I want to mention to you, uh, and, and I want to make sure I cover this because we've seen it in their briefing both at the trial court and we've, we've heard it here today, and it's something that concerns me because I think it has the capacity to misinform the court if it's not corrected, uh, and I want to address that. Plaintiff argues, and it's one of their first arguments that Mr. Burton made, that oncologists at Wake Forest reported Mr. Carter's cancer was, quote, newly diagnosed, but seems to have been misdiagnosed and present for at least a year. The way plaintiff's brief reads, it could misinform the court that Wake Forest has admitted that there was a misdiagnosis. In fact, that's exactly what Mr. Burton just argued to you. Plaintiff very carefully has argued in their briefing and used the word reported, not determined or found or concluded. And the reason they do that, if you look at document exhibit 1450 in the record, in the, in the 9D documentary exhibits, is a note that's made by the oncology resident that is this whole point that you've heard about. And the resident is reporting what Mrs. Miss Carter, the plaintiff, is saying to her. The note was a history taken by the resident that was copied repeatedly by later treating physicians. It is Miss Carter who injects into the record the notion that there was a misdiagnosis of her father for a year. That is never anything that anybody at Wake Forest ever said. If you look at the note, again, 1450, that resident then goes on to completely debunk the notion that Mr. Carter had squamous cell carcinoma uh, and says that it's unlikely squamous cell carcinoma would have, uh, would have metastasized to his spine and it's much more likely that it was lung cancer uh, or possibly prostate cancer. But the point I want to make to the court is no one from Wake Forest ever believed that Mr. Carter had been misdiagnosed for a year. So I just want to make sure that's clear. Turning now to the question of whether um, the court should affirm the uh, summary judgment that Judge Gottlieb granted for, judge, for, uh, Mr., for Dr. Vlad and Dr. Feldman. I want to be clear that the only cancer, the only cancer that has ever been the theory of plaintiff's case here is EMPD. Plaintiff concedes that surgical removal of EMPD is the only proven treatment for that. It's undisputed that a diagnosis of EMPD depends upon a pathologic finding of EMPD uh, from a skin biopsy. Without that, a surgeon is not going to resect a rash. Resection here would have required the removal of a large area of Mr. Uh, Carter's groin. It would have been major surgery on an elderly gentleman who had serious cardiovascular disease. Plaintiff argues that one of her experts, a Dr. Ho, a dermopathologist, testified that the pathology slides show primary EMPD, meaning that that was the origin, and that it metastasized to other locations. 
plaintiff then says that Dr. Ho's opinion contradicts the real-time report of the Wake Forest dermatopathologist, Dr. Sangueza. They then say that because they disagree on whether or not EMPD was present and whether it, it, had, it was the original or had, had metastasized, uh, creates an issue of fact and they should get by summary judgment for that reason. But here's why that argument misses an analytical step. That argument ignores the relevant point that it is the report from Dr. Sangueza that the treating physicians use to make their treatment decisions. The treating physicians do not go behind the dermatopathologist and re-review the biopsy slides. They have to rely on what Dr. Sangueza says in his report. It's what his report says that matters, not whether he was right, because the, the treating physicians will not go and dispute that. They never look at the, at the pathology themselves. And Dr. Sangueza's report does not make a finding of EMPD. That is undisputed. Neither do the reports of the other pathology that was taken from other biopsies uh, of Mr. Carter. And here's why that's important. Plaintiff's expert, Dr. Pushkas, is an oncologist. And he testified that if M EMPD was the original location, the primary location for Mr. Carter's cancer, that EMPD would also show up in other biopsies wherever it had metastasized, but it didn't. The biopsies of other locations show, do not show EMPD, further conforming, confirming Dr. Sangueza's opinion. Plaintiff argues that Dr. Sangueza's affidavit is speculative about what an earlier biopsy would have shown. He was the only full-time dermatopathologist at Wake Forest um, at the, at, in 2016 and 2017, and his testimony is not speculative. He testified it is highly likely that he also would have been the person to review an earlier biopsy, if one had been done, of Mr. Carter's skin, and that uh, he would have read it the same as he did in February 2017. Now, pl plaintiff does is say, well, Dr. Ho, our expert dermatopathologist, has testified that he couldn't say that pathology of an earlier biopsy would not have looked just like it did in February of 2017. Therefore, Dr. Sangueza is just speculating. Well, here's the problem with that. That testimony from Dr. Ho does not support their case. His testimony does not create an issue uh, that an earlier biopsy from Dr. Sangueza, a report, would have said EMPD. That is the necessary step in order for Mr. Carter to get treatment for EMPD, is that report. His testimony, that is Dr. Ho's testimony, only says that he couldn't say. So what we have is Dr. Sangueza saying, I know what I would have read earlier, and plaintiff's experts saying, I don't know. That does not create an issue of fact on causation. Also, I, I want to address this, this point. When they're talking about what they would have read earlier, I mean, in, in theory, it would, have, it, it would have been a different biopsy that didn't happen, right? Right, Your Honor. Okay, so it's what you would have read earlier is speculating about a test that didn't happen. Well, 
he's, I, I don't think, I, I would disagree with that, Judge Riggs, in this regard, is that he's a dermatopathologist that sees uh, slides and, and he's seeing, um, uh, I think, I can't remember the way he has described it, uh, undifferentiated um, carcinoma, okay? I think, you know, what we have to, to accept is that when he says that what I see here and what I would see earlier from this tissue would have looked the same. So based on his experience, what he's saying is, I don't think that the longer cancer progresses in the skin is going to look, it's going to be harder for me to see what's going on. So what he sees later in the progression is even stronger evidence of what he would have seen in an earlier time, is the, is the way I would describe it. The last thing I want to address is um, the argument that you've heard here, uh, and we heard it at the trial court with Judge um, Gottlieb, is that Mr. Carter would have lived longer even after metastasis had occurred, okay? And what the expert testimony for the plaintiff is that once metastasis had, had occurred, he was terminal. And their argument is that if you had still treated him you know, earlier, uh, even after metastasis occurred, you could have prolonged his life six to nine months. The problem with that argument is, and the, they cite the Morrison versus Stallworth case for that point, is this is a wrongful death case. The question is, did we cause Mr. Carter's death? Not did we fail to prolong his life? The complaint here is 100% a wrongful death claim. Morrison versus Stallworth talks about um, a shortened life expectancy, and, uh, which is what they're essentially arguing. And shortened life expectancy under Morrison is a damages element in a personal injury case. It is not a causation theory in a wrongful death case. And that's the problem with this notion that um, we fail, <coughs> fail to prolong his life. It's not within the pleadings. It's also not supported uh, on the case law um, because the, the Morrison case is, is only about personal injury and this is not a personal injury case. That covers what I, I would like to address with the court. Uh, if there are any questions, I'm happy to, to answer those or try to. If not, I would ask the court, <clears throat> we would ask the court to affirm Judge Hall's summary judgment in favor of Dr. High and affirm Judge Gottlieb's summary judgment order uh, in favor of all the other defendants. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Ready for rebuttal. Thank you. Um, I think I'm going to address Dr. High first, if it pleases the court, because I think it's easier uh, to deal with that. And I think his honors and her honor have hit on the idea uh, that experience is part of that thing. And that's exactly what we're saying. Back to your question about the idea of whether or not a general practitioner, not saying a general practitioner would qualify. I don't think that they would. But these are people that see the exact same patients. They see people with these skin rashes. They understand what they are. They see people with these nodules. They understand what they are. And in fact, just like you saw at uh, Johns Hopkins when he went up there, he saw all three of the exact same specialists, and he saw them for a reason. Each of them is opining about that. When you come back to the idea about the diagnoses of cancer or the consideration of the diagnoses of cancer, it's our evidence uh, that Dr. High violated the standard of care by one, not considering cancer, and two, not taking steps to rule it out. 
As I indicated earlier, High indicated under his own deposition, a lot of infectious disease, disease doctors like him do biopsies. It's not a question of whether or not you do them. It's a question of whether or not you should have ruled that in or out and referred him out for other testing in that regard. I think we've uh, addressed, it, addressed that point, uh, and I want to kind of uh, come back to the idea that it would be our contention that this whole thing about ordering biopsy, whether or not he can do so, is just a red herring. He, he testified himself he can refer people for biopsies, uh, and he did not consider it. Again, his deposition, I never considered cancer. That's the violation of the standard of care. Uh, I want to change, if I can, and go over to Sanguisa. Uh, and, and I, uh, as long as I practice law now, almost 40 years, I can't get my head around this Sanguisa argument that they keep making. First and foremost, he's an employee of the defendant in this lawsuit. Second, he's never been disclosed as an expert in this trial. Third, they want you to believe that you should believe what Sanguisa says, but ignore everything that Ho says. Ho, who has the same credentials that Sanguisa has, has said, in his opinion, it was EMPD. He has said to a reasonable degree of medical certainty, in January of 2016, it was EMPD. It continued to be EMPD. They want to make an argument that because uh, Sanguisa does the pathology report March the 7th, I believe, of 2017, literally a month before Mr. Carter's dead, because at that point it's too late to do anything for him. They want to make the argument that, hey, wait a minute, Sanguisa would have read it the same way back in October. First, remember what Sanguisa read. He read cancer. We can debate what that cancer is, but he read cancer. Had he done it six months earlier, according to them, he would have read cancer. But your point is perfect, Your Honor, on the idea of what that is. It is whole cloth speculation as to what Sanguisa would have read at some other earlier time. Second point about Sanguisa. They want you to believe what he says is the gospel, pardon my language. But, but in that sense, they're saying Sanguisa says it's not EMPD, he doesn't see it. Ho says it is. Ho says it is to a reasonable degree of medical certainty. We've met our burden regarding that, and it doesn't matter if Sanguisa disagrees. That's what we call in trial court a question of fact for a jury in that respect. So, so you know, when, when we talk about that idea, this whole thing about Sanguisa just is not legitimate argument. The other argument that counsel makes about this idea about the, quote, medical student or intern or resident authoring a note, look at the record yourselves, Your Honor. The record is not in the history portion of the record. The record speaks to the idea of misdiagnosed for a year. It appears in the record no less than probably 15 to 20 times from uh, March to, the, to April, his date of death, and it's never corrected, yet they want you to believe that that's not a valid record. Again, isn't that a question of fact for a jury? Because they're arguing the record isn't what it says it is, but the record appears to be a blatant admission. Isn't that what the fact finder is for in trials like this? Well, but in summary judgment here, though, particularly this question, isn't, isn't I mean, respecting our position, the misdiagnosis is kind of, we're going to presume there's a misdiagnosis for purposes of summary judgment. The question yes, becomes... Did that misdiagnosis pro approximately cause? Uh, and to address that in a different way, yes, I would contend to you that, that that gets you beyond summary judgment from that standpoint. But now we're talking about proximate cause. What is the evidence of proximate cause? 
Camisa uh, and Carrico both have testified uh, with regard to those issues, as have Ho and Pushkas. From that standpoint, Ho has said, I think he had a skin cancer. He says what he thinks it was, EMPD, based upon the reading of the slides. And he says that to a reasonable degree of medical certainty. He says, I believe that started in January of 2016. Remember, misdiagnosed for a year. From that standpoint, when he says that, that gives you evidence that, that, that's been there for that amount of time and it's never been considered. Remember, what we're claiming is a misdiagnosis. They failed to consider cancer on the front end. They failed to rule it out on the back end. They didn't do anything regarding that uh, until February the 24th of 2017 when they finally ordered a biopsy when the records are replete for months before that about the need for diagnostic testing. Remember, go back to Johns Hopkins. Johns Hopkins says the need for a biopsy to rule out malignancy, and that's exactly what we're talking about. Remember Valad? Valad sees him September 22nd and says, I think it's bacterial or fungal, but this presentation is not typical and other things should be considered. Yet he never considers cancer at all, despite the fact that other doctors that saw before him, Zulecki and the people at Johns Hopkins, did in fact consider that and said it should be investigated. You've got a few minutes left. I, I want to get one question in um, and give you time to, to wrap up. But will you speak to this notion that the only claim you've brought here is the statutory wrongful death claim and not sort of claims that would encompass kind of typical medical negligence that would I'm ha happy to do so, Your Honor. When, when we talk about complaints and that we file in court, you know, from the standpoint of a wrongful death complaint, it's filed under Chapter 28, as His Honor, as His Honor knows. We're talking about medical expenses. We're talking about, quote, pain <coughs> and suffering. There's a pain and suffering element to that. Certainly, Mr. Carter would have known he's misdiagnosed when he's ultimately diagnosed. Mr. Carter would have had suffering that would have gone along with that diagnosis. Mr. Carter would have had pain that went along with that diagnosis. Those things are included within the wrongful death claim by statute in that respect uh, would be my argument back to the court on that. You know, when we uh, uh, talk about the idea, though, about uh, 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 the cancer, I want to address that real quickly if I can for a moment. You know, this idea about Sanguisa where they say, wait a minute, he says it's not EMPD, but he does say it's cancer. You know, isn't that the, the dog chasing the tail? Because they're basically saying, you know, gosh, Sanguis is not a party to this lawsuit and he's not a party for obvious reason. He had no involvement until March of 2017, long after the fact that Mr. Carter is now too late to do anything for him. Because as soon as he's diagnosed, March 7th, they basically put him into palliative care because there's nothing they can do for him. It's been misdiagnosed that long. But at the same time, they want to say, we wouldn't have read it as, as EMPD. Again, that's a red herring. The idea of whether or not he read it as EMPD is irrelevant, but first, he would have read it as cancer, and they would have done diagnostic testing to determine what that is, and they would have ultimately been able to treat him. Our experts say, to a reasonable degree of medical certainty, he could have been treated, and his life would have been prolonged, as we've already talked about uh, in that way. So, you know, when we're, when we're talking about that, Your Honors, it would be our contention that the summary judgment should be overturned as to both, and this case should be remanded to the trial court for trial. I want to say one last thing, and it has to do with the 9J issue. There, we don't know why Judge Hall did what Judge Hall did. 
There are no findings of fact. We have no idea what that was, and it's whole speculation what it is. I think the case law speaks to the idea that there should have been findings of fact on that issue, and that's all I have to say. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you to both sets of counsel for the excellent arguments and briefing uh, in this matter. Uh, we'll take the case under consideration, and uh, we'll go ahead and adjourn court.